I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k flats. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. Hey, it's me, Lars Larson. Thanks for checking out my podcast, and be sure to tell a friend about The Lars Larson Show. Are you approaching retirement or maybe you've just changed jobs? If so, you'll probably now have control of your 401k or IRA. Would you like to buy some property, notes, loans, start a new business, or even buy crypto? You can with a self-directed IRA. For more than a decade, I've been telling you about setting up a self-directed IRA through IRA Advantage. And while you may now hear other companies say they offer self-directed IRAs, you need to find out if they're truly self-directed. With a truly self-directed retirement account, you can make any investment the law allows. Whether you're talking about true diversification, starting your new business, or investing in private holdings, IRA Advantage through a truly self-directed IRA can make that happen. Take it for me, Lars. You've worked hard for your money. IRA Advantage will work hard to keep it yours. Would you like to learn more about truly self-directed IRAs? Then visit iraadvantage.com. View our videos and call IRA Advantage. That's iraadvantage.com. They feed you three meals a day. You don't have to do sh- but stay in your tent or party, or if you smoke a lot of dope, you can do that. Yes, you can do that on the streets of Portland. Welcome to the Lars Larson Show on a Tuesday. And if I, have, if I haven't had the chance to say it to you already yesterday, uh, Happy New Year to you, and welcome to the Radio Northwest Network. That little soundbite has now made that homeless woman, apparently a woman who likes to get high a lot and really appreciates the fact that here in the Pacific Northwest, she's found a place where, as she says, they'll feed you three times a day and you don't have to do blank. All you have to do is get high and enjoy yourself. She is now, her face at least, is known around the planet because Great Britain's Daily Mail has actually done a story on this woman. Portland homeless woman says being on the streets is a piece of cake. I'm going to give full credit to Kevin Dahlgren, who's with a group called We Heart Seattle, a so-called community engagement organization, when he stopped to talk to this one, because I think she illustrates an important point. And then I know that a lot of you have said, Lars, you talk about these problems all the time. How about a solution? Well, I've actually got part of a solution, and part of it just became law two days ago in the state of Washington. And it might surprise you. But I think it's actually a good change in the law as opposed to one of those bonehead things we're used to hearing from Boise and Olympia and Salem. Let me get to that in just a moment. But first, welcome to the Radio Northwest Network and welcome to the Lars Larson Show. Glad to have you on board. And if you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, I'm glad to invite you at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer and you disagree with me, 
Why, that's all right. For 26 years now, we've always welcomed the naysayers and promised you will go right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. I'm going to get to our Twitter poll here in just a moment. And I will tell you, I'm watching the decision-making on Capitol Hill. Uh, They've already had one vote. Kevin McCarthy lost that one. He appears to have lost the second vote for speaker, and maybe we can actually get a real conservative as the House Speaker for Republicans. The new majority in the House of Representatives will continue to follow that. But right now, it's a bit like watching paint dry as they count vote after vote. Uh, It is historic, though, because it's been about 100 years since America actually had to go to a second ballot for any choice of a Speaker of the House. And I've had a few of you say, well, why can't the Republicans get it together? like the Democrats do. And my response to that is, no, I'm glad to see that we don't have a bunch of conservatives who ran as conservatives, some of them here in the Pacific Northwest, then went back to Washington, D.C., and they behave like establishment Republicans. They say, oh, the establishment wants us to have Kevin McCarthy. Okay, I really don't like the guy. I really don't think he does a good job. I don't think he'll stick to conservative principles. But if that's who the party tells me to vote for, Do you want that kind of Republican Party? Because I certainly do not. But it actually takes us to our Twitter poll, which has to do with the woman whose voice you heard a moment ago talking about how living in the Pacific Northwest is a piece of cake. You've got a place to stay. You've got food to eat. And all you have to do is get high and you don't have to do blank, a word I can't say on the radio. So I decided to make this the Twitter poll, something brand new in Washington state that may be a piece of the solution. Washington State is now going to issue free of charge, taxpayers are paying for it, free of charge photo ID to the so-called homeless. But I would add one more element to that that's not in the law. I would say, should we require them to use it? And I'll explain what I mean about that in a moment. But our Twitter poll question, should we give free photo ID to the so-called homeless and then require them to use it? Again, I'll explain to you how I mean to use that in a moment. Today's Twitter poll is brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If we, if you rely on, tr- on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. Now, let me go back to the full soundbite that was obtained by Kevin Dahlgren. He's with a community engagement organization. I know, I know, I have the same reaction to that name you do, called We Heart Seattle. And he was talking to this woman uh, about what it was like to live on the streets. And I don't think he knew what she was going to say. Take a listen to the totality of her comments to this man. So how is it like being homeless in Portland? It's a piece of cake, really. I mean, that's why you probably got so many out here, because they feed you three meals a day. You don't have to do but stay in your tent or party. Or if you smoke a lot of dope, you can do that. Um, Mm. What else? What else, Melissa? What else do I say? I'm being interviewed. Um, That's really it. It's like you wake up, you go eat a blanche, get high. Go eat a blanche for lunch, get high. Go eat dinner, get high. And that's all you do all day long, every day. And it's a piece of cake because why? We've rolled out the red carpet for people. There's no expectation that you try to beat the drugs that you're on because drugs, as pointed out by Eric Johnson in uh, Seattle is Dying, that great documentary from a couple of years ago, 
The fact is the vast majority of the people living on the streets are not there because an apartment is too expensive. They're not there for any other reason than that they are on drugs and they have worn out their welcome with their family, with their friends. They probably worn out their welcome with just about any employer they've ever had and they're stuck because they spend everything they get on drugs and they stay high and we make it a piece of cake for them to do it. So I have to admit that this idea coming out of Washington State in this case is not the worst idea in the world, but I would add some things to it. As reported by our friends at Como TV, a free identification card program for people experiencing homeless in Washington State is now law. The new measure took effect January 1. Individuals who live within the state, this is Washington State, are considered sheltered or unsheltered. If they don't have a valid driver's license, they can be issued one time a no-cost ID card by the Washington Department of Licensing. Under the program, a homeless individual is eligible for a one-time taxpayer-funded original or renewal identicard. They then renew about every eight years. Here's my suggestion. When you talk to people about the homeless, they'll tell you why we have thousands of them in Portland and thousands in Seattle. And you say, what are you doing for them? We're spending literally, and I'm not exaggerating, hundreds of millions of dollars, about $300 million a year in Washington, in uh, Seattle and King County, in Portland and Multnomah County, over a quarter of a billion dollars every year. And what do we have to show for it? Do you know how many people are living on the streets? Nope. They, they have a rough estimate. Uh, do you know how many of them are there because of drugs? Nope. And I don't think they're trying to find out. Now, you'll hear that some are affected by mental illness. I'm sure that's true. And I'm sure that some of that mental illness, maybe even most of it, is driven by those illegal drugs. Are you trying to get people off the drugs? Are you trying to find out where they stand? No, we're going to feed them today, house them today. In, in the case of, of Portland, give away 100,000 tents and tarps and keep them living on the streets. Now, if you issue them ID cards but say when you go after those public services, you have to tell us who you are and identify yourself. That at least gives us some ability to track what your problems are and maybe even how to solve those problems as well. Glad to be with you on a Tuesday. Happy New Year to all of you listening on the Radio Northwest Network. If you want to jump in, it's 866-HEY-LARS. And coming up in just a moment, the big increases in power costs here in the Pacific Northwest. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show. That makes a lot of sense, a lot of nonsense. Right, you're bloody well right. You know you got a right to say this is the Northwest Nonsense. How much longer do we have to sit for this nonsense? That great moment every day where Lars brings you the cold, hard facts without any liberal wokeness from the daily dead fish wrapper or mainstream media bias. Do Northwest elected elites really have a plan to make us freeze to death in the dark? I know that's a blunt charge. The evidence suggests that's exactly where we're headed in this new year of 2023. The biggest natural gas company in the region wants 11% more from its customers for the fuel that heats so many homes and runs so many businesses. And the Public Utility Commission has already signed off on a 15% increase in electricity costs. And why are those prices going up? Why, it's Econ 101, supply and demand. 
Leaders elected by the people have decided to fight new natural gas pipelines to throttle down the supply of one of the most plentiful energy resources America owns. In fact, a bit later on this hour, I'm going to tell you about a huge state institution in the state of Oregon that was actually cut off from natural gas in the last couple of weeks to be able to make sure that residential users had enough. Are we really that kind of country where there isn't enough to go around? It doesn't make any sense because natural gas is one of the literally the most plentiful energy resources that America owns. We have literally trillions of cubic feet of natural gas, most of it on federal lands, which means when private companies bring it up out of the ground, they make money, and so does the U.S. Treasury. Now, the electric companies, the electric companies are telling the PUC that power production costs are up. No kidding. So they have to charge more money. These same elected elites decided to force the shutdown of a dozen inexpensive coal-fired electric plants and then try to replace it with wind and solar. They've already shut down two or three of the plants. They plan to shut down about nine more. Wind and solar, as much as you may love them, only produce power about one-third of every day for obvious reasons. So when you tear out 100 megawatts of evil coal, you have to replace it with 300 megawatts of solar cells or wind turbines from Joe Biden's buddies in Beijing. On top of that, Joe Biden's inflation has already jacked up your cost of living about 50% faster than your paycheck has gone up. It's all about choices you make and, of course, the people you elect to make them. On Twitter, Juanita Broderick says, Remember when the Biden administration demanded firing the Ukraine prosecutor for going after Hunter Biden? Well, he just did the same thing to the U.S. Virgin Island prosecutor for going after Chase Bank to get at Epstein. Yes, Jeffrey Epstein, who didn't hang himself. And our question of the day, from suggested by Matt Brady, who wrote to me and said, Hey, Lars, I've got a possible question of the day. Would you buy a 10-year-old electric car? Everybody I know that I've asked has said no. Happy New Year. Signed, Matt. And now today's Daily Grill. Insane. Are you completely insane? Ridiculous. They get more and more ridiculous. Flat out dumb. You're even dumber than I thought. Who deserves today's Lars Grill of the Day? Maybe they're just really, really stupid. Presented by Rogue Conveyors. Go Rogue. Well, yesterday I talked a lot about transit and light rail with a number of callers who thought it was the explanation. It was actually the the proper solution to transportation around the Northwest. And I said, no, it's really not. They poured billions of dollars into it. And of course, I got a lot of feedback from people who actually drive light rail trains in both Seattle and Portland and from those who also pilot the buses around those cities. Well, if you want an example of why people are not riding transit, uh, let me suggest that you take a very close listen to this incident that happened on a light rail platform. Take a listen as the police respond to help a man and the kind of trouble he's in on that light rail platform. Listen to this. 5-6-3 caller says the suspect is still on top of the victim, and there's people standing around not reacting to this. little further description, unknown race male, gray hair, blue beanie, tan coat, red socks. I think he might be biting him now. Oh no, half this guy's face appears to be chewed off. Copy. Our victims most likely end up in trauma injury, severe head trauma, possible fracture skull, missing one ear at least. Missing one ear at least. Now there's a tagline for TriMet. Ride our bus. Maybe you'll get to keep both of your ears. Do you wonder why people aren't riding the bus or the train? Because it's dangerous right now. 
and the powers that be have chosen to make it continue to be dangerous for some reason unknown to me. Today's best email, but you can always send more to talk at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by the MEI Group, one of the largest heavy civil construction companies in the Northwest. Currently hiring and paying top dollar for project managers, engineers, and estimators. TheMEIGroup.com. This note came in. As I said, a lot of drivers wrote in. Lars, I'm a fare inspector for TriMet. The reason people aren't riding as much because there are always mentally ill people riding and causing problems. On any given train, you'll see at least five people sleeping with all their blank. Well, I can't say that word on the radio. And the daily use of any given drug on Max, we do our best to make it safer. But we only have a crew of 34, of which half work 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. The other half work 4 p.m. to midnight. They keep saying they're hiring more people, but empty promises. I would encourage you to have one of your staff go out and video it. They can even come and join our crew and watch what we do every day. Yeah, I've seen lots and lots of videos of the crazy stuff that goes on on transit in northwest cities, especially Portland and Seattle. And as long as you choose to make transit toxic to the legitimate people who might want to ride it by allowing others to do that, makes no sense. By the way, do you think the mainstream media in places like Seattle may take crime just a bit more seriously when the media becomes the victim? In a story at Post Millennial by my friend Ari Hoffman, he says, feeling bummed out about having our King Live, that's King TV is one of the affiliates, the NBC affiliate, our King Live truck vandalized with graffiti just after New Year's at the fireworks show. It was such a nice show, but the hoodlum ruined the mood for me and the engineer. Crime is so rampant in Seattle that while covering the New Year's Eve fireworks at the Space Needle, the local NBC affiliates van was graffitied along with two other vehicles. King 5 photojournalist and editor Diane Lewis posted on Twitter a photo of the vandalism in progress and wrote, feeling bummed out about our tr live truck getting vandalized with graffiti. This is the kind of thing that's being allowed. Just remember, it's being allowed. If the powers that be, the city councils, the mayors, the police chiefs, if they wanted to stop it, they could stop it. They choose not to. On that note, let's go to Ron, listening in Tacoma on KVI and the rest of our Radio Northwest network. Hey, Ron, welcome to the program, and Happy New Year to you. Well, Happy New Year's, Lars. Uh, I wasn't sure if you've gotten a chance to get around to your emails, but last week I sent you something that would be considered very interesting. What is it? Get quick. I sent you a video from a pretty uh, notorious uh, lawyer, uh, civil rights lawyer. Uh, anyways, uh, he uh, put out just recently a video showing that the Federal Bureau of Investigation is apparently now into a new business of obstructing justice for crooked cops. Um, I, I how are they doing? How are, how are they doing? How's the FBI doing that with crooked cops? Police are a local matter. FBI is federal. How are they doing that? Well, luckily, the local police didn't let it go, and they did go after the uh, cops. They did get them. But the FBI, uh, through the disclosure after the investigation, uh, it was provided to him uh, that okay, the you're, you're, you're they not... warned. They warned, the, they warned the officers that there was an uh, undercover camera inside the house. Okay. Well, Ron, I appreciate that, but you got to tell us what they're doing, not just go watch the video. But I appreciate the call. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network.
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Not such a pleasure to see the record increase in crime and especially violent crime in Pacific Northwest cities. Of course, Portland had set a brand new homicide record last year. Sorry, not last year, in 21. And then in 22, it actually eclipsed that record as well. The number of shootings, the number of people wounded, the number of people killed has all gone up. And I got to wondering, can a man of the cloth actually make a difference in the skyrocketing violence in the Pacific Northwest? Well, one man who does believe he can is Reverend Matt Hennessy, senior servant at the Vancouver Avenue First Baptist Church. Pastor Avenue, uh, Reverend Hennessy, welcome back to the program. How are you? Lars, I'm good. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be with you and to be with your wonderful uh, listening audience. Well, I appreciate you doing it because you actually were appealing to the man upstairs uh, when I called you today. He said, oh, my goodness, what, what are you doing, Lars Larson? I, I got a release that said that you are part of a group that put out a plan about a year ago and said, here's what we're going to do yeah. to try to address violence. Uh, and, and you were yeah. kind of giving yourself a report card on what have we managed to accomplish. Would you mind sharing some of that with my audience? No, I'm happy to do that, Lars. We... Um... The group is the uh, the Portland Peace Initiative, which is a part of our work with the Interfaith Peace and Action Collaborative. And that group has been meeting for six and a half years on issues of gun violence. And we have seen, obviously, the spike. So our push this last year was to say, here are 10 things that we're looking for the city to do. We asked city council to... Um, intervened by uh, creating an emergency declaration, by making sure that violent crime is one of their top priorities, also to invest in, um, in you know, organizations that are trying to do their best to fight violence as well, um, and things of that nature. I won't go, I won't go further because I know you have it, um, Lars, and I'm happy to answer any questions you have. I think it's a mixed review in terms of how we've done, but there's more work that needs to be done. We are still focused on making sure that we stay in this because there are too many people that are dying on the street, too many people that are injured, too many people traumatized. And Lars, my own family, has also dealt with this as well because we lost our son in May of uh, 2021. So I'm sorry to hear that. And, and you have our sympathy. Kind of thing. Yeah. Reverend Hennessy, see, I I think there are things that people behind the pulpit could actually do about this. But to be honest with you, I don't see them doing it uh, because I don't think the, the solution is going to come from leadership so much. I mean, they've already told us what they're going to do. They're going to cut the cops. They're they're not going to prosecute people. They want to let people out of prison. They don't want to hold people to account. They don't even want them to serve out their full prison sentences. You don't have any say in that. But part of the problem is the community, parts of the community in particular, don't seem willing to help identify the bad guys because I don't see it as gun violence. I see it as people violence. People use guns. They also use knives and blunt objects. But I want to see people behind the pulpit saying, you're going to turn these people in. And when you see people uh, engaging in violence or you think somebody was you know, involved in a violent action, you need to tell the police about it. Is that message getting out from behind the pulpit? Uh, Lars, I think that your uh, take on that is correct. I don't think that that's happening uh, nearly enough. I also know that in times when I have 
come on the scene when a violent crime has occurred, um, that people are very reticent to um, to tell the truth about what they saw. And that part is very unfortunate. It is also the case that we in the pulpit need to make this a issue and that we need to recognize not just one thing, but several things need to happen to try to really bring down the amount of violence that we're seeing. Um, so your take is correct. I don't think it's about, um, you know, cutting police or anything like that, but I definitely think, Large that upstream there are issues in terms of, you know, how we uh, work together in our families, about issues regarding mental health, about issues regarding how we handle conflict, about issues of how we handle community and make sure that we make our investments, even if in using technology to find out where the guns are, where the gunfire is. And Lars, I'm just going to tell you, I'm ready to sit down with those who are calling the shots on the street and say, it's obvious we have failed you. So talk with us about what we need to do differently, because it's pretty clear that what we have done is not enough. And those are some of the concerns I have. Pastor Hennessy, if you saw a member of your congregation doing something that was truly evil, you'd call them out on it, wouldn't you? Maybe privately to begin with, but later on, if they didn't stop, you might call them out and say, this person has to stop doing this because it's hurting people. You'd do that, wouldn't you? Uh, yeah, there's no question, Lars. Not only would I do that, I would want to make sure that they get the help that they need to not do it again. Okay, but I'm talking in this case about one elected official. The district attorney of Multnomah County keeps having the police hand him criminals uh, or accused criminals and then saying, I'm not going to prosecute them. Should D.A. Mike Schmidt be called out for that? Well, first of all, I love Mike Schmidt, and I know that he's got a difficult job. What I also recognize is that this is one piece of the problem that when I also understand that there are a lack of public defenders to be able to help really prosecute a number of these kind of cases. And I think, as I have interpreted what um, D.A. Schmidt is dealing with, is he's saying, I've got one of two choices. If I can't prosecute him, what legally am I allowed to do to try to hold people to account? And my sense is that's part of what he's dealing with. I'm not a fan of, of Mike Schmidt because when he came into office in August of the, the, the riot year, he, he immediately yeah. announced within, within months he was going to f- not prosecute hundreds and hundreds of cases, and he didn't have a shortage of public defenders at the time. He's using that as an excuse now. And I might point out the number of cases they're filing is down by about 50%, and the funding for public defenders is up by over 50% in the last 10 years. I don't believe they're short of public defenders. But if you'd accept that as an excuse, I, uh, okay, fine. The second thing is this. I'm, well, it's just one no, we'll I, have to I debate. respect that. And well, here's, I mean, here's the thing. Okay, go ahead. We need, no, no, I just think, Lars, that we really need to convene a, um, uh, a, a summit on how we're going to get out of this. One of the things that I believe is that Portland is a city that's great. I've lived here 30 years of my life, more over half of my life. The fact of the matter is we are able, when we come together across culture, across denomination, across everything, we can solve our problems. This one is one that can be solved 
but we've got to work together. We can't point fingers at each other. We've got to look forward and say, what are we going to do for the future? And that's really where it's at. And I believe that we can be a model to other cities around the nation. See, I think I think there is a time that you you know, you're not supposed to judge, but you are supposed to be discerning. And I think you should say, I think there are some people here that are causing the problem. Um, but Pastor Hennessy will have to maybe do that on another occasion. But I appreciate you coming on. Well, Lars, I really appreciate you reaching out. I have a great deal of respect for you, the work you're doing, the messages you create, and certainly the audience that follows you. And 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 think think that Mike Schmidt thing again, because I, I think he's feeding you a line of baloney, and I don't think you'd take that from your <laughs> parishioners. So uh, that's Reverend Matt Hennessy. Uh, glad to have you with me, Reverend. Coming up in a moment, glad to get more of your phone calls and emails in this new year. And we've got to talk about that accused killer in Pennsylvania now, headed for Idaho, accused of killing four young people, and the latest on that. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. <laughs> They want George Santos' resignation But what about Liz and the Cherokee Nation? About her heritage she lied And still the fake news took her side The biggest fraud you ever saw Liz made her husband call her squaw Cherokee people Liz ain't that kind She lost her soul She lost her for the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Radio Northwest Network. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Tuesday. And if I haven't said it before, Happy New Year to you. I actually got back into the new year yesterday. Glad to have you with me. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's 866-LARS. And if you're not familiar, Jim Gossett was talking about George Santos, Republican member of Congress, and apparently he lied through his teeth. You say, Lars, you're saying that about a Republican? Of course I am. I'm perfectly happy to hold Republicans to the truth, just like Democrats. And in fact, if you don't remember this, it was Wester Cooley, Republican member of Congress from right here in the Pacific Northwest. He represented a district in Oregon in Congress. He lied about who he was. He lied about his military record. He lied about his marriage to the woman he called his wife. He lied about a lot of things. And he lied on his voter registration. He lied on home uh, mortgage documents. And he lied to voters. Most importantly, he lied to voters. George Santos appears to have done the same thing. And yet for the Democrats to come out, as they did, after Santos was elected by the voters and say, but he lied about his background. Yeah, a lot of us said, well, uh, how about Elizabeth Warren? You know, Focahontas lied about her background for her own benefit to get a sweet job at Harvard teaching one class a year for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Or Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut who decided to lie about his service in Vietnam when he hadn't done any service in Vietnam. 
But like I always say about Democrats, they need to have double standards or, after all, they would have no standards at all. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Our Twitter poll, and this is a little idea from me. State of Washington has now instituted a law as of two days ago that says that if you are living in a tent or on the streets, you're so-called homeless, or as they're now calling them, houseless, because that's supposed to sound more charitable, should we give those people free photo ID? I would answer yes. And then require them to use it to access the public services that are offered up. Taxpayers are funding between Portland and Seattle this year. Taxpayers are funding north of half a billion dollars for a relatively small number of thousands. It's just thousands of people that are enjoying that half billion dollars in funding for so-called homeless services. Except the people who are shoveling out all that cash, the taxpayers, didn't get much say about it. And we don't know where it's going. We really don't know where it's going. I pointed out to you before that a lawsuit that was brought on behalf of disabled people who find themselves unable to even walk down a sidewalk, in that case in Portland, uh, because the sidewalks are blocked with tents and tarps and homeless encampments and human waste and everything else. When that lawsuit was filed, some of the discovery they got by forcing the city and the county to give up documents showed that Multnomah County and the city of Portland had handed out over 100,000 tents and tarps in one year. And I'm not exaggerating. For a population of the homeless that is supposed to number about four or 5,000 people, and they handed out over 100,000 tents and tarps. Now, if you say, but we need to find out who these people are and how we can help them, I'm all for that. Now, if they happen to be the people like the soundbite I played at the beginning of the hour, the woman who said, hey, piece of cake being homeless in Portland, they feed you, you get high. You, you get high again, you feed, you, feed, you get high, you get, you get high, and then you go to bed, sleep, and do, it, and do it all over the next day. Piece of cake. How about having some photo ID and saying, we will provide services for the homeless, but we want a way to find out whether or not you're actually doing anything to change your circumstances. Are you trying to get off the drugs? Or are you just taking all the freebies that are being handed out from people I think who should have the money. The taxpayers pay all this money. It's shoveled out to the so-called homeless to enable them to stay drunk, to enable them to stay drug addicted, to enable them to stay on the streets. Now, is that reasonable? And would it be reasonable to say, now that we're offering free photo ID, we need to see ID. If you want to access public services, you want to get that free tent, that free tarp, that free meal, the free medical care, the free this, that, and the other thing, then you got to show us who you are. And we're going to make sure that we hand things out to people. And we're not, I mean, if you, like me, suspect that of the 5,000 so-called homeless who are handed 100,000 tents and tarps, that some of those tents and tarps ended up at the local secondhand store because you got the tent or the tarp and then you sold it so you could get even more money for drugs or alcohol or whatever. Yeah, I suspect the same kind of thing. It's a Tuesday. It's the brand new year of 2023, and you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network and the Lars Larson Show. Lars here with a question for you. Why is it that some people aren't as stressed out about the future as you'd think they would be? 
The answer, they're probably among the millions of Americans who prepared themselves with emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. If the worst ever happens, literally millions of American families are already protected from dealing with those empty store shelves. Is yours? Mine is. If not, go to MyPatriotSupply.com right now and grab some emergency food kits, at least one for every member of your family. These kits give you a wide variety of delicious meals that average over 2,000 calories per day. That's what you need. Everything stays fresh for up to 25 years in storage. Order your kits right now by going to MyPatriotSupply.com. Your order ships fast and arrives discreetly in unmarked boxes. Listen, this is something you need to jump on now before the next news headline stuns the world. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com. That's MyPatriotSupply.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And by the way, we are keeping track of the historic vote on Capitol Hill as the Republicans now with the majority in the House of Representatives seek to elect a Speaker of the House. Kevin McCarthy has now failed on two votes, and well, he should. I don't want him as the leader of the Republicans in the House. And uh, other candidates are starting to emerge like Jim Jordan, uh, like maybe Steve Scalise, like Andy Biggs. And now they're going to a third vote. It has been 100 years since the uh, last time that the House of Representatives had to go to more than one vote to decide the Speaker of the House. But I want to talk about things going on here in the Pacific Northwest. And one of the biggest concerns, of course, is violent crime. But beyond violent crime is what the police call and prosecutors call property crime. That is break-ins, robberies, burglaries, things like that. And I thought we'd get our old friend C.W. Jensen on, retired police captain. C.W., good to have you back. Happy New Year, Lars. Happy New Year to you as well, although it's not very happy for a lot of the businesses that keep getting broken into, and they're wondering, when is this going to stop, or do you think that it's going to get worse, and what would it take to actually turn this around? Well, here's the problem, is that, you know, everybody focuses on the shootings and the murders, which you have to, because, you know, uh, Ted Wheeler was going to reduce it by 10%. It's gone up 10%. There's 100 people murdered, um, homicides. But what happens is, is you pull people from the other things, like, well, it's just burglaries, and, and, and you send them, and now they're doing assaults and things like that. Then the people that have burglaries aren't getting the service they deserve. And it, I can remember back in the 90s, we had a lot of car thefts. And I was doing things with the club, and we had all these things going on. The sad thing about Portland is if you're a business owner and you, you have all these different things, leasing a place, getting insurance, all these different things, but now part of starting a business in Portland, you've got to harden it. You've got to decide, are you going to have bars over the windows? Um, you know, because like at REI, a month or so ago, somebody yeah. drove a truck that was stolen right through the front doors. And how do you go about hardening a business so that it can resist? I mean, this almost sounds like you need the kind of hardening you'd have needed in Fallujah uh, or, or some other place or, well, or in a federal you, building. If, if you've ever been to New York, think about it. When they close a bodega down or whatever, they have a big sheet of metal that comes down. I mean, is that what you, I mean, we got plywood in Portland. Is the next thing for Portland is that when you close your business, you put 
a metal sheet down so people can't break in. It's getting ridiculous, and it costs these poor business owners so much money that they might as well go to Lake Oswego or Beaverton. Yeah, they're going to move out because can you imagine a small business that's told it's going to cost $10,000 to moderately harden your store with steel shutters or or, or uh, t- gates or, or bars over the windows? And even at that, the $10,000, you may have to work as a small business owner for the next several months just to pay that back. And then you forgo your salary all just to protect your business against the kind of thing that should be addressed by law enforcement, prosecutors and, and prisons, shouldn't it? Yeah, and I have friends in Portland that own businesses uh, like a women's boutique and a hair salon and stuff like that. And it breaks my heart when they're posting on Facebook, oh, my wife's place got busted into again and, you know, we're going to lose our insurance. I mean, people have to realize it's like a cancer and it metastasizes first in downtown and then it spreads. And you become Detroit in 10 years. Well, and in fact, you know, when you hear that somebody has used a car to yank an ATM machine loose from its footings in a store, and you say, well, they're stealing a box full of money. That kind of makes sense. The other day, this story about uh, Ritual Dyes, which is a yarn shop, and the yarn shop got broken into. And you think, what are they stealing yarn? Well, they were going after the computers, uh, you know, just this tiny little store and whatever cash they could find that wasn't locked up some way securely. Uh, but when they're going after yarn shops, it means they've already run the gamut of probably all the other available businesses they might go after that have much more expensive stuff inside. Right. Everybody. I mean, the thing is, if you go back when I worked the street, it was like mid 80s. And then I got promoted to detective and I worked burglary for six months. I mean, there was a solid core of burglars. But now what basically Portland has imported thousands of burglars and they pay them and let them sleep and shoot dope on the street. And now I, I guess Ted will be stunned to hear that it's not safe to own a business in Portland. It's certainly not safe to park a car on the street in Portland. And you and I have talked just between you and me over the years, you know, about the broken windows theory. If you let people not register their cars and just leave them on the street, if you let stolen cars become no big deal, if you let burglaries become, oh, well, what do you do? It just devolves the city. And if the city doesn't have a heart, then everything dies. In fact, somebody just emailed me and said, Lars, 10 grand won't buy a single door, and he's probably right. And you know the things they're stealing, CW, the marketplace? My stepdaughter had the hood of her car stolen, and and, and her boyfriend lost the hood of his car. They drive nicer cars. They have nice jobs. Uh, But I thought... I looked it up and I said, yep, sure enough, the hood for that car goes for about eight or $900. And clearly there must be somebody out there, some sleazy shop that says, yeah, we'll, we'll buy the hood through the back door. We'll buy it for a fraction of what we'd ordinarily have to pay for it. And then we'll sell it back to somebody who came in to have their car repaired. And that's the kind of stuff that's going on now. And I think that they could solve this. They, if not solve it, they could certainly reduce it dramatically. But none of the folks who are in charge seem willing to actually take the actions necessary to do that. One of my favorite shows, and I never watched it when it was popular, is House MD. And, you know, these people in the show come in and they're all messed up. And then the doctors in House always figures it out. I find it fascinating. And um, 
but these people have like 15 things wrong with them. And, you know, the doctors figure out how to get through each 15 things and save the person's life. Well, Dr. Ted Wheeler and his nurses there on the city council, they've just gone, eh, they're going to die. What can we do? Your mayor and city council have given up. You have record shootings, record murders, record traffic collisions. Remember Vision Zero? How's that yep. working out for you? Not very uh, well at all. Yeah. And and by the way, they, they, you know, Tacoma, I faulted them yesterday. Tacoma, under Vision Zero, same idiocy that Portland's doing. They said, we're going to reduce the speed limit on residential streets. I said, I already know the numbers. 30% of the accidents and fatalities happen on residential streets, 70% arterials. Except it's not politically acceptable to reduce the speed on arterials. So they reduce it in the neighborhoods where it won't make any difference whatsoever. That's C.W. Jensen, former police captain uh, and, and a good friend of the Lars Larson Show. Coming up, I want to tell you a story about an Afghan Special Forces soldier who fought with Americans, but he's now sitting in American detention because he tried to get back to the United States. You got the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and we call it the best conversation in talk journalism, and you're certainly welcome to weigh in at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the front of the line at 866-439-5277. You can vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that two places, at Lars Larson Show on Twitter. And if you're not a fan of Twitter, go to my website and vote on the question there. That's LarsLarson.com. And if you want to send me an email, we tried to make that email address years ago as simple as possible. Talk at LarsLarson.com. And welcome back to the Radio Northwest Network, proudly serving the Pacific Northwest states for the past 23 years, providing honestly provocative talk for Oregon, Washington, and Idaho for almost, uh, well, more than two decades, uh, not quite not quite a quarter of a century. I want to tell you a story about something that involves one of the most colossal disasters of the not-quite-two-year-old Biden administration. It was, of course, Afghanistan. It was deadly. There were American service members who lost their lives. We gave away tens of billions of dollars of American hardware, especially high-security hardware like night vision uh, glasses or, or night vision devices and, and weapons, both vehicles, uh, helicopters, uh, armored vehicles, and, of course, handheld weapons as well, long guns and short guns or pistols. So with all that going on, I want to take you back about a year and a half to August of 2020. This is when this debacle began. And Joe Biden, President of the United States, was told that Kabul could fall apart quickly. And he should have known that. He should have kept the American troops in place where they had been for 18 months with not a single casualty. Instead, he decided that he wanted America's military out of there as fast as possible. Now, did he evacuate the military first or the civilians first? And civilians, not just American citizens, American service members, and Americans who were doing other kinds of work over there, but also Afghanis who had worked with the American forces or American organizations and knew that when the Taliban took over, they were likely to end up dead. Well, Joe brought the military out first and tried to evacuate civilians second. Now, if that seems kind of backward to you, it seems backward to me as well. And there was an awful lot of human damage that happened. There were people who got out on airplane flights, but they weren't screened, which means that we found a number of them who were on terrorist watch lists, 
people who were not had not worked with the Americans. They just said there's a there's an airplane leaving uh, Kabul, Afghanistan. Fine, I'm on it if I can get on it. Well, I want to tell you about one guy in particular, Abdul Wasi Safi, and I have to cite the great reporting of National Review on this. This is a guy who had worked with and fought alongside American service members during the 20-year war. And you say, well, what happened to him? He managed to escape from the Taliban. He managed to escape from Asia and made it all the way to South America, to Brazil. And then he made it all the way 1,200 miles to the U.S. border, where he had hoped to make an asylum claim. But he didn't present himself at an official port of entry. He had no valid entry documents. That's required. So he was taken into custody and will be processed for an expedited removal from the country, according to Department of Homeland Security. Now, he was taken into custody September of 2022, September last year. And this is what makes this especially tragic. This is a man who's known to his family and his friends. His dad had actually said, I want you to go into the Afghan army. And he said, no, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to go into the military, but I'm going to serve alongside American service members. He did that. He's a former lieutenant and an intelligence officer in Afghanistan's special forces, the ones that don't exist anymore because the Taliban is running the country now. He managed to make it all the way to the United States, and you would almost think a guy like that would show up at the United States. They'd quickly be able to identify him through biometrics, through fingerprints, through all the other ways that they could identify him and say, why, thank you for all the things that you have done for our service members. Of course, we're not going to send you back to Afghanistan. If we send you back to Afghanistan, the Taliban, for your cooperation with Americans, will simply kill you. Well, he's been in federal custody since about September 30th of last year. He's currently in the custody of the U.S. Marshals at a detention center in Eden, Texas. Now, let me point out to you, one of the great ironies, and this is a criminal-level irony, is that while the Biden administration has allowed almost 6 million illegal aliens who have no right to be in the United States whatsoever, has allowed them to come into the United States and stay in our country, Six million of them. They can't see their way clear to release this man, and they've had plenty of time to identify him. He's a former interpreter for the U.S. military. Uh, his brother is a former interpreter for the U.S. military as well. And he says this guy should be welcomed into a country whose soldiers he fought alongside. Instead, he's being treated, according to his brother, like a criminal. He's calling for this man to be released from federal custody so he can live in Houston, so he's effectively offering to sponsor this man. He says, quote, this is what his brother says, I want the Biden administration to basically look at his service and appreciate him and show the world what America stands for and show that America, just like the promise, we will never leave our allies behind. This man came to your door asking for safety, asking for you to accept him. This man is your ally. And in fact, a coalition of 23 different U.S. veterans groups on December the 21st, just a few days before Christmas, sent a letter to President Biden asking that he grant Wasi Safi parolee status while he awaits for an asylum hearing. Now, we've given parolee status to hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of illegal aliens who have no claim to live in the United States. They have no likelihood that they'll be accepted, but this is a guy 
who actually was a member of Afghanistan's special forces and, as the Veterans Group puts it, faithfully served America, and not one of them should have to endure a path like this to reach safety. But that's exactly what this man has had to do. I mean, his dad wanted him to join the Afghan military and become a translator. Instead, he wanted to pursue a career in special forces. He graduated from a military academy in India in 2018, got special combat training from U.S. forces in northern Afghanistan. And during the chaos of the evacuation, he tried to get on a flight out of Kabul. In fact, when that bomb went off that killed 13 U.S. service members and 160 civilians, that was August 26th, two years ago, two and a half years ago, uh, he was 50 meters away from it. He didn't manage to get on one of those last flights. Those are the flights where people were literally hanging on to the outside of the airplane and falling off to the ground. He went into hiding. He went from safe house to safe house. And those safe houses were provided by U.S. veterans groups. He managed to get it to Pakistan. He got out of Pakistan, got his way to Brazil. He managed to get all the way from Brazil to the U.S. border. And now here's a man who worked with the U.S., who was one of the people that Joe Biden talked about saying, we're not going to leave these people behind. We're, we're, the people that have helped us in that country will be dead or in very big trouble with the Taliban, dead probably, if we don't get them out of there. Joe Biden has not done right by this man. Joe Biden is the president. He could tell the federal marshals. He could tell the courts. He could say, let this man go. This man helped us out, and we owe him that much. Joe Biden won't do it, and that is a tragedy. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails in a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show on Twitter and at LarsLarson.com on the web if you're not a big fan of Twitter or something like that. Uh, the southern border of the United States, which I've been talking about a lot, is a mess except you're not going to hear that from the likes of the Biden administration. In fact, just today, Karine Jean-Pierre, the president's spokeswoman, who's usually cleaning up messes every time her boss opens his mouth, uh, she has to come out and say, well, Joe didn't exactly mean that. He meant something else. She was asked, is the southern border secure? And she actually told the reporter, we have to be very careful about how we talk about the border, because if we say things about it, that might be misinformation that'll actually help the smugglers. Now, I'm trying to figure out the logic of that, but I want to turn to Mark Morgan, who's a great friend of the show and former chief operating officer and acting commissioner of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency, now at the Heritage Foundation. Mark, welcome back. Lars, thanks for having me. Listen, let me ask you about that first. Karine Jean-Pierre says if we were to admit that the border is out of control and the Biden administration is not doing anything about that, does that actually help the smugglers in any way, shape, or form? Yeah, look, how, how, how absurd is that, Lars? Remember, this is the same White House press secretary that told another reporter, well, it's not like the illegal aliens literally just walk across the border <laughs> when that's exactly what they do every single day, all day long. No, he, here's what helps the smugglers is this administration intentionally, this wasn't done by incompetence, this was done by design. They dismantled the network of tools, authorities, and policy we had that, that really provided this country with the most secure border in our lifetime. By February of 2020, we had reduced uh, illegal immigration by 
25%. We'd put uh, integrity back in the system. We'd put more agents back on the line so they could do their job to protect this country from a host of complex threats facing our nation. And this this White House press secretary, this president, this DHS secretary continues to lie to the American people, said the border's secure, it's closed, and, and, and there's nothing to see here. Now, I want to ask you about something that's going on literally at the moment as you and I are talking. Vote number three on the House Speaker. And the thing I want to ask you is I usually ask you about things involving the border because that's your expertise as former acting commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Right now, the House of Representatives is choosing whether or not to take Kevin McCarthy. And McCarthy, as I understand it, is one of the reasons a lot of us conservatives don't like him is that he's the guy who early on said, well, we're not going to be talking about impeachments. Uh, I think he meant Biden specifically, but I think uh, I would include in that Mayorkas as well. I think Secretary Mayorkas should be considered for impeachment for having failed America. And I think Joe Biden should as well for having allowed this border crisis this decision today about the House speakership may actually decide whether Republicans go after that or not. Or, or, yeah, would, you, little, or would you agree? Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I, I want to stay after, you know, I will stay out of the politics, especially okay. of who's going to Fair be speaker. But, 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 Lars, you're, you're, you're right, though, is that this is an issue. Uh, this has got to be an important issue. We, we can't have the same Republican thought process that we've had for decades. And let me let me bring the facts again. This isn't this isn't a political statement. But remember, under President Trump, the Republicans had the White House, the House and the Senate, and they failed to pass a single piece of border security legislation that would have prevented about 85 percent of the disaster going on right now. That's not political. That's a fact. We could go past that. Look, for decades, the issue with our border has been going on, and it's been both Republicans and Democrats that's failed to pass meaningful legislation. And now what we need from the Republican Party is for the the leaders and and everybody else in the party to show political courage, strength, and will to do the right thing to pass meaningful legislation. And so if if they don't think the current leadership is going to do that, then I commend them for what they're doing because that's what we need. See, that, that's my view of it. I've, I've had people say, Lars, why can't the Republicans get their act together? I said, what do you mean, march in lockstep like the Democrats where right. you just, you know, no, I don't want them to march in lockstep. If they say there are issues with Kevin McCarthy, and I realize you have to stay away from the politics of this because your relationship with Heritage. But the fact is, the, the time you talked about, Trump in the White House, House and Senate under Republican control, and who didn't get it done? Paul Ryan. And who was his deputy? Kevin McCarthy, which is why a lot of us say we don't need another replay of that, especially when we don't have the White House. We don't have the Senate, but we do have the House and maybe we can get something done. You got the wrong leadership in there. You might as well just say, "Okay, now we wait for 2024. And of course, that's not that's not something that's going to solve this problem. So what is there any sign that this is improving, and what could the Republican House do if they choose the right leadership and choose the right actions in, in this uh, this congressional year? Look, Lord, look, this is why I love coming on your show, because you're asking all the right questions. Look, if you would have asked me before uh, the, the $1.7 trillion omnibus uh, was passed, I would have said, hey, I'm extremely hopeful. I'm skeptical. But I'm really, really hopeful because where we're living in the worst border disaster crisis in our lifetime, it was self-inflicted. It was intentional. Every aspect of our nation's safety and national security is being jeopardized You know, every single day. We talked about the numbers. We talked about the disaster. We talked about Americans are dying every single day. Migrants are dying every single day because of this administration's open border policies. But look, I was hopeful. And then the Senate. 
uh, ushered in by 19 Republican senators, passed a $1.7 trillion omnibus spending bill, of which the bill gave billions to DHS, which in the language, Lars, says that that money cannot, quote, be used for border security. It can only be used for processing. So the, the, the oh, and by the way, the, the same omnibus bill, it gives millions, by the way, to other countries for their border security, just not to secure our, our own. And so the Senate took away one of the strongest leveraging tools that the House had, and that was the power of the purse. So for the next nine months, their strongest leverage of power and tool was taken away by the Senate. So now what we need them to do is pass some meaningful legislation. But let's be realistic. Is that going to is that going to pass the, uh, the, the Senate? And it, let's just say it does. You think uh, Biden's going to uh, uh, let that pass? No, he's going to veto it. So their, their hands are literally tied. So it goes back to what you said a minute ago. At a minimum, they've got to hold hearings. They've got to start holding people accountable. And I think they start with this administration's chief architect of its deadly open border policies, and that's Secretary Mayorkas, who has not only been that chief architect, but he's lied to the Congress and he's lied to the American people every single day about the truth and reality of what's going on. No, I, I'm with you, because if they held those hearings and could actually say, we're going to hold it, but it has to actually make a difference. I mean, right now, we, the, the current count, as I understand, since day one of Joe Biden, is about six million. That's the actual number. Now, people keep saying, well, let's look at fiscal years or from this point to that point. The total number in less than two years has been six million. And if Title yep. 42 comes off, the courts kept it in place, I think, more for practical reasons than, than because of the pandemic. Uh, but but in any case, um, if, if they leave it in place and then remove it at some point this year, then that that number goes up even even bigger than it is already, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah you're, uh, Lars, again, you're, you're spot on. Look, your, your listeners need to, to, to really take in. I, I know sometimes we numb to the numbers, but I'm really pleading they can't listen to what you just said in 24 months, six million. So, so that, that, that's a, a, over 5 million uh, total encounters and over a million gotaways in less than 24 months. Look, I just got the December numbers. You're, you're the first uh, 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 you know, media pers- personality that I'm speaking this to. So Border Patrol apprehension alone, not total encounters, just those apprehended by Border Patrol is going to be almost 230,000, if not more. That right now, so the first 90 days, the first 90 days of this fiscal year, that's over 640,000 apprehensions just from Border Patrol that in the first 90 days. That's 200,000 more than the entire years of apprehensions by Border Patrol in FY 2020. Doesn't make any sense, does it? Mark Morgan, the former acting commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection now at the Heritage Foundation. Mark, thank you very much. Back in a moment, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show on the Radio Northwest Network, now counting 23 years of service to the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho, and providing, at least we try, to provide honestly provocative talk on a daily basis. Our Twitter poll should be a bit provocative. I mentioned to you there's a brand-new law that went into effect in Washington State two days ago. And uh, ordinarily, you might think, well, Lars isn't going to like this. Should we give free photo ID to the so-called homeless? That's what the uh, legislation passed by Olympia, signed by the governor, does. Uh, Up till now, if you're a homeless person and you wanted to get a photo ID from the Department of Licensing in Washington State, it costs $72. Now, you say, why would we want to have one more freebie giveaway? I can give you a couple of reasons for that. 
I can tell you that many of the homeless that I've spoken to on this show have said, well, I can't get a job because they want me to have photo ID. Good. You've got it. Free of charge. Well, free of charge to you. Of course, the taxpayers would be paying the bill as well. But what I'd like to do beyond that is require them to use it to access all of the programs that we're providing. I mean, in Seattle and King County, about a third of a billion dollars every year. In Multnomah County and Portland, about a quarter of a billion dollars every year being allocated to a relatively small number, uh, 10,000 or so, 10 or 11,000 so-called homeless in the Seattle uh, Puget Sound area and about 5,000 or so in the Portland metro. And you say, well, where is all this stuff going? Who's getting the service? They don't know because the people who live on the streets don't have ID. So give them the photo ID, but then say every time you want to go in and access a meal, shelter, uh, services of one kind or another, you need to use it, and we need to start figuring out who are the people with the problem, what are their problems, and are we insisting that they start to fix their own problems. Today's Twitter poll can be found at Lars Larson Show and is brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. Now, right now, they're in vote number three, choosing a House speaker on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Yesterday's Twitter poll on the first day of the year for me for 2023, I asked, do you think a Republican-controlled House will make 2023 better than 2022? Boy, I haven't seen a split decision like this in a long time. 51% of you said no. 49% of you said yes. Essentially split right down the middle. If you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers always go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Listening on the Radio Northwest Network, Peggy, welcome to the program. You told the producers you're a naysayer. What do you and I disagree about today? Peggy? Hello, Peggy. Gee, am I going to lose a good naysayer because she's not listening? Hmm. Tell you what, I'm going to put her back on hold and see what happens at that point. Let me tell you a little story. Can you story hear me now, Lars? Yes, Peggy. Is this Peggy? Oh, yes. Sorry. <laughs> okay, I was plugging my phone back down to the charger. Okay. Well, we're, we're going to run out of time. What do you and I disagree okay, about? Well, real quick. Well, I'd like you to explain to me, Lars, because I usually agree with you on about everything. I'd like you to explain to me why you think Kevin McCarthy shouldn't be our House Speaker. Because he doesn't have a majority support from his party because his party says this is not the right guy and I don't want an establishment Republican I want a Republican that will actually hew to conservative values the conservatives have been voting against him from within the Republican Party and that matters doesn't it Peggy or should we just go along with well, whoever yes, the that party does matter because I am a Republican and I was very upset I finally turned off Fox News because they couldn't take it anymore after the second vote because like I said to your guy, okay, so what's going to happen to uh, the House if Jeffries won? Of course, your man told me that Jeffries isn't going to win. So who do you think? So who it's do you think it should Je- be? Big? Well, well, I would take Jim Jordan. I would take Andy Biggs. Uh, Biggs is uh, Jordan's name has been put in nomination right now. The current vote count is twenty That's for Jim Jordan <laughs> and two hundred for McCarthy. I believe M- McCarthy is already he's very close to losing numerically right now. So. If you have, well, I do like Jim Jordan, to be honest with you, Lars, but I don't think he has enough of the Republican people that want him in there either. If enough people reject McCarthy, then you can get Jim Jordan. 
But there are an awful lot of Peggy. I don't need to tell you this. You live in Oregon. I live in Washington. Both states suffer mm-hmm. from Rhino Republicans, don't they? You know what a yes, Rhino is? That I'll tell you right now that I never voted for McCain because I thought he was a, he was the worst Republican representative our party was, in the whole U.S. He was thoroughly was dishonest. He was thoroughly dishonest. McCain was, yeah. I mean, I'll honor him for his military service or his time he spent as a POW. The late John McCain was a skunk. He was a skunk in about six different ways, and we've learned more about that since his passing. You know, I, I didn't wish any ill on the man, but he was, he was a dirty dog. He's the guy who helped push yes. the Russia collusion yeah. narrative because he ran for president and yes. lost and watched Donald Trump winning, and he decided to try and torpedo Trump by f- pushing a false narrative that tied this country up for most of the Trump presidency. I'm with you. But if you've got a man in Kevin McCarthy who can't get members of his own party to support him because they don't think he's conservative enough, then have him step aside and have somebody else replace him. Could be Jim Jordan, could be a number of people. Nancy or Peggy, thank you very much for being a great naysayer. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Oregon Utility Notification Center wants to remind you that whether you're planting a tree, building a fence, or just making improvements around your farm or home, click or call before you start your work to get the area marked. Then dig safely and avoid contact with buried utilities. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones. Know what's below. Call before you dig. For more information, visit us online at digsafelyoregon.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Tuesday, it's a brand new year, and it's the Radio Northwest Network. Glad you could join me. And if you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, we try to make that possible every single day. And the promise is, call the show, we'll get your point of view out there, 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer and you disagree with me, this year we mark 26 years of always putting the naysayers to the head of the line. And, of course, we get them from time to time, although I tend to get more emails that are naysayers than I do phone calls that are naysayers, but that's okay. Uh, 866-439-5277. Vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that two places, at Lars Larson Show on Twitter. And if you don't like Twitter, go to my website at LarsLarson.com. And if you want to send an email, we've made that as easy as possible, too. Talk at LarsLarson.com. We've got 24 great radio stations that carry this show to every corner of the Pacific Northwest. Now, I happen to make my home in the state of Washington, so you might say I have a dog in the fight when it comes to the next governor's race in Washington State. But I'm glad to see that Governor Jay Inslee is, uh, well, he's going to have some people running against him, including Semi Bird, who is running for governor. And you're starting at exactly the right time. Semi, welcome to the program. Lars, I'm honored to be here. Thank you for the invitation, sir. Well, I'm glad to do it. But why don't you start by saying this? I mean, people ask me about running for office. I've never had the I've never been bitten by the bug. I have no interest. I think I do more good where I am right now. But it's, it's a compliment to have people say they want to run. Why do you want to run for governor? And what would you do if you got the office? You know, there's a couple of good ways to put this, but I'll, I'll, I'll reflect on what a dear friend of mine said a week ago. He says, Simi, one thing I've realized about you is that you're the kind of person that when you see something going wrong, you cannot help but get involved. And I spent much of my life in service to my country and service to our federal government and now as a school board director and service to my community. And it is as a school board director when I started to see the policies of this administration and how it has harmed our children, how it's harmed our economy, and I can go on and on, someone's got to stand up. 
And one of the things we're seeing unfold on, on national TV right now is the implosion within the establishment of the Republican Party. We need to put career Americans back ahead of career politicians. And I think I'm that person, um, a we the people candidate that can actually get in there with my background and my policies to make effective change for the state of Washington. You know, I'm with you because an awful lot of people have said to me, well, why, why, why don't we just elect Kevin McCarthy? That'll be fine. I said, the last thing we need is an establishment Republican. And I think an awful lot of people become establishment Republicans because they become, just as you say, professional politicians instead of people who are professionals in the, in the rest of the real world who say, I'll go off and serve my state or my district for a period of time, but then I want to go back to my real life. Uh, I, I, I'm fearful of those people who say, I want to be a, you know, I want, nobody actually runs by saying, I plan to go to Washington, D.C. and stay for a, several decades, as, say, the likes of Patty Murray or Ron Wyden have done. But I think those kinds of people are dangerous because then reelection becomes the most important thing, and actually serving the public's interest is the least important thing. Exactly. And, and that is what's wrong. It's, it's lack of leadership. We, we've, 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 we've come so far away from what professional leadership really is. And that's servant leadership, putting the, those who you serve first, right? And when you start to think about, are you in it for you? Are you in it for them? It should always be about them. That is what a politician should remember when they get elected to office. They are the representative of the people. And it's not up to politicians to impose their will or their opinion on the people, but to do the people's business, to listen to the people, which is why one of the first things I'm going to do once I do get elected for Washington state governor is I'm going to petition our legislation to start putting together a bill to, to change our uh, term limits for Washington state governor. And I'm going to work to impose term limits for the office of governor in Washington state. Now, what kind of term limit? Oregon has, you can serve two terms as governor, then you have to get out for at least a term. You're allowed to come back after that. But of course, that's usually a tough haul for most politicians, even if you're hugely popular. If you run for two terms, they've come to know you warts and all, uh, and then you leave for four years and come back. You've got a chance. You can still run for another term. If people say, oh, yeah, we loved Semi. Let's bring him back for another four years. You can only do it uh, much later. And I think that's the way it should be. You know, one term, you, you get in the office, you understand what needs to be done. And, and, for example, one of the first things I'm going to do is call for a third-party audit and assessment of all state offices and all state programs so that we have a quantitative analysis of how we're performing. And then we can take that information, bring solutions with real actions to start to repair the damage that has been done, to start to move towards economic growth and opportunity for all Washingtonians. In the second year, it's refining what you've established and starting to build greater relationships and to continue that journey. But after that, move to the side and bring in another career American to come in, someone of the people, for the people, right, and by the people. That's the way right should be. And so then, again, let someone else come in. And if you want to run later on, well, then the people know how you performed. And again, it has to be not about me, but about we. And that's what's missing. 
I'm talking to Semi Bird. You can find uh, information about his campaign. And as I said, I think you're studying at the right time. You can find it at Semi Bird, S-E-M-I-B-I-R-D, Semi Bird, for governor.com. Now, you talk about changing our welfare infrastructure from a handout to a hand-up system. Uh, I like the sound of that. Uh, would you mind telling me a bit about what you do in details? Because people may not realize this, but an awful lot of federal programs, SNAP is a fish, food stamps is officially a federal program, but it's administered by the state. Welfare uh, is large, TANF is largely funded by the feds, but it's managed or mismanaged by the state. How would you change it? Semi, did you disappear on me? Semi, did we lose you? Let me hold on. Yes, sir. Thank you. Semi, oh yeah, we, we lost you for a moment. How would you change that system? In, in terms of, we're talking about the um, term limits? The welfare system, because you said you want to change oh, it from goodness. a handout to a hand up. Go for it. Absolutely. So first and foremost, we have a system right now where we literally are subjugating people to a lifetime, and I would say a legacy of poverty. When you continue to give, 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 what is the incentive for them to actually rise out of poverty? And so to specific to your point, let's give a time limit, put a time limit on the amount of money and the time that a person can receive state aid. But at the same time, we're giving them a trade or a certification or a skill with job placement so that, again, we're raising people out of poverty. We're giving them that independence, and their generations, their children are watching their mom and their dad rise out of poverty. And this goes back to that old aphorism, you know, uh, teach a person how to fish, yep. right? That's what we need to be doing with our, with our state. And think about it. For us fiscal conservatives, now we're going to have tens of thousands of people back on the books paying taxes and growing with our state. This contributing to the state, contributing here. to the community instead of instead of leeching off the community. Semi Bird for governor.com. He's running for governor of Washington State. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Tuesday. Always glad to get your phone calls and emails. And if you want to jump into the best conversation in talk journalism, it happens right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And if you care to, vote in our Twitter poll. We put up a brand new question each and every day, two places, at Lars Larson Show on Twitter and at LarsLarson.com on the web. Uh, I want to point something out to you. Uh, the push for Americans to become vaccinated continues. And uh, over the uh, Christmas and New Year's break, I noticed that when Joe and Jill Biden, or Dr. Jill Biden, as she insists on being called, uh, when they gave their New Year's message, uh, Jill Biden said, go get that COVID vaccine and get your flu shot. Now, I got to tell you something uh, so that I can admit my dog in the fight. I'm not vaccinated. Didn't seek to get vaccinated. Have I had COVID? Yeah. Had it. Got over it. I'm fine. Do I have diabetes? Yeah. A am I in my 60s? Yeah. Uh, and I still don't have any burning desire to get the vaccine. And in fact, about 30% of Americans have made the choice not to get the vaccine. And a large number of Americans who got the original shot. And then we're told you have to get a booster and then another booster, and then another booster, to the point where, at one point just a few weeks ago, I saw one news story that had medical experts, so-called, 
saying why you might end up having to get a booster every few months because they now know that the vaccine, uh, which we're told was going to stop people from getting sick altogether, that turned out to be, if you take the most charitable view for it, inaccurate. If you take the least charitable view, it was simply a lie because the people who were saying it said it and had absolutely no idea what they were talking about. In fact, let me ask Dusty, my producer. Dusty, if you've got a moment, that vaccine mashup, if we have that series of audios, because this is kind of telling. Americans were told a lie about this, and I don't think there's any charitable way to put it. When you had the so-called medical experts who said, you know what, if you take the shot, you won't get COVID. And you say, well, did they say that? They say, yeah, they said it, and I'm going to let you hear it. And if you take the vaccine, you won't get it and you won't go to the hospital. You might ask yourself logically, well, if you're telling me that the vaccine will keep me from getting COVID, of course I'm not going to the hospital if I don't have COVID. And of course they say, and it would also reduce the number of people who die. Except that a couple of months ago, the CDC itself said about 58% of the people who have died uh, recently of COVID were vaccinated. And you say, well, hold on a second. So 58%, almost two-thirds, more than half of the people who've died of COVID had been vaccinated. I thought the vaccine was going to stop that. No, they told lots and lots of lies. And if you don't believe me, take a listen to this little mashup of sound bites of members of the Biden administration selling the features of that mRNA vaccine, saying, if you get it, you won't get sick, you won't catch it, you won't carry it to anyone else, it'll protect the people around you. Take a listen to this. You're okay. You're not going to you're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. These vaccines are highly, highly effective. Vaccinated people do not carry the virus, don't get sick. They're really, really good against variants. Everyone who takes the vaccine is not just protecting themselves, but reducing their transmission. Get your first shot. And when you're due for your second, get your second shot. Our key goal is to stop the transmission, to get the immunity levels up so that you get almost no infection going on whatsoever. When people are vaccinated, they can feel safe that they are not going to get infected. If you're vaccinated, you're not going to be hospitalized. You're not going to be in an ICU unit and you're not going to die. Now, you recognize some of those voices. The first one, of course, was Joe Biden. And then you heard Anthony Fauci in there and all these other supposed experts. Well, the fact is that Americans have realized that they're being lied to. And I've told this to people and they say, well, how do you know that? I said, let me let me point out to you what Americans are doing. About 70 percent of Americans took at least one of the shots. But then when you say, well, how many of them are current on their boosters right now? Then the number falls below 50 percent. You say, why would somebody get the first vaccine? but not get all the boosters that followed after that? And the answer is because they realized it wasn't making sense. They'd been told, if you get it, you can't get sick. And that wasn't true. If you get it, you can't go to the hospital or won't go to the hospital. That wasn't true. And then that last lie from Joe Biden, if you get the vaccine, you're not going to die. Well, sadly, it turns out that that's not true. As I said, the CDC had reported numbers saying 58% of the people who are dying recently, as in the last few months, uh, uh, were, were vaccinated. Now, let me tell you what's just come out this week. The latest Rasmussen Reports national poll. Now, Rasmussen is one of the polling companies. There are some that kind of tilt to the left and there's some that tilt to the right. Rasmussen, for the most part, has been right about down the middle. If anything, they tilt a little bit to the left politically. 
So I always keep this in mind when I'm looking at polls, and I never look at polls as an overall exact measure of anything. I tell people it's kind of like a weather vane on top of your barn if you own a barn. If you look at it up, up at it, you say, well, the wind is pretty much coming from over there. It doesn't tell you exact, precise measurements. It gives you an idea of roughly what is happening. That's what these polls do. Well, the poll released this week from Rasmussen Reports, a national telephone and online survey, finds that 49% of adult Americans believe it is likely that side effects of COVID-19 vaccines have caused a significant number of unexplained deaths. Yeah, all those headlines you saw where it said died suddenly, and you see young, healthy Americans who simply dropped dead, and you say, well, what's going on there? How, how come this is happening? Is it being covered more, or is it happening more? And that's a significant question. They also say 28% of Americans, more than a quarter, not quite a third, who think it is very likely that the complication side effects of the COVID-19 vaccine has caused a significant number of unexplained deaths. Now, 37% do not say a significant number of deaths have been caused by the side effects. So just over a third of Americans say, no, nah, no, the vaccine isn't causing anybody any harm, including 17% who say it's not at all likely. And then you've got about 14% who are not sure. And t- here's, here's the number that kind of stunned me. 28% of adults say they personally know someone whose death they think may have been caused by the side effects of the COVID-19 vaccine. 61% say they don't know anybody like that. And the fact is that an awful lot of Americans have been looking at this saying, number one, we were lied to about the vaccine. Joe Biden lied. Anthony Fauci lied. Rochelle Walensky, the head of CDC, lied. And they told us things that we now know are not true. Take the vaccine, you won't get sick. Take the vaccine, you won't go to the hospital. Take the vaccine, said Joe Biden, you won't die. Well, we now know those things are provably untrue. Should they have made those statements? No, but they are still pushing the vaccine. So on New Year's Eve, Dr. Jill Biden, not a medical doctor, by the way, said, go and get your shot. Get it right now. If you need a second one, get a second one. There's a reason that Americans are no longer listening to that message because they've seen the actual evidence and they know if you lied to me once, you're probably going to lie to me again. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails in a moment. I want to update you on this. The vote so far has been three different ballots on Capitol Hill in the House of Representatives. Kevin McCarthy would like to be House Speaker, and it doesn't appear that he's going to be House Speaker anytime soon. Three ballots, all of them shot him down as House Speaker. And on the last one, he actually lost more votes that had been going to him. And we're going instead to Jim Jordan, who would be one of my choices. But we'll get to that in a moment. I wanted to talk to Akash Chogli, uh, who's Senior Advisor for Americans for Prosperity, about the prospects in this brand new year of 2023 for an American recession. Akash, welcome back and Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm glad to do it. Uh, I think an awful lot of people expect uh, average folks, non, non-economists, non-politicians, kind of expect that we're going to see a recession this year. 
even though the White House seems to be, uh, I guess, just whistling past the graveyard saying, no, of course not. Everything's going swimmingly. Yeah, I mean, you and I have probably seen much of the same information, which is that uh, economists are predicting a recession. The market's been tanking. Um, and, you know, really, this is sort of it's, it's coming home to roost. We we saw rampant inflation all of last year. Very little was done to address uh, supply chain crises and labor shortages and things like that. And while some of that might dissipate, uh, the underlying factors of, of people's savings decreasing and, and lack of, uh, you know, really lack of confidence in the economy doesn't seem to be going away. And so, unfortunately, it does look like a recession might already be on the horizon. Well, in fact, you mentioned something interesting in there. It, you know, people are running out of savings. The savings numbers are going down. They've also ramped up their spending, and they did heading up to the uh, the holiday period at the tail end of December. Uh, they spent a lot of money, and they put a lot of it on plastic. And so as that runs out, in some ways, that might actually have a, a negative uh, effect on, on uh, spending and everything else. That could help push us into an inflation, uh, into a recession all by itself, because if people run out of money, uh, and they and they run out of credit. Uh, I'm not sure how you, how they could continue spending. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, exactly your point. When they weren't, uh, you know, certain what the situation was going to look like, and they didn't have the savings, people were putting spending on their credit cards. Uh, again, just you know, just like with the nation's credit card, that does come home to roost at some point. Um, but I think the really important thing that you know your listeners need to understand is that the thing that drives economic growth and, and moves the country forward, you know, our consumer spending is great, obviously, but the real driver is, uh, is investment, right? It's capital investment, it's new companies, it's expanding companies, expanding operations, buying new equipment. That's how we really raise wages, create new jobs, move the economy forward. Uh, there simply isn't confidence enough to do so on the part of investors because of the inflation crisis, because of the regulatory agenda, uh, and a number of other factors, some of which the administration is to blame, some of which they are not to blame, but certainly policy has not helped the situation. And that's why we're looking at the situation that we might be facing this year. Well, and you can't blame a company. I mean, not, whether you're a big company or a small company, if you say, gee, uh, should we expand the number of warehouses? Should we expand our plants? Should we expand our workforce to make more products heading into a period where the people who are our customers don't have any money to buy our products? That would that would be especially foolish, especially with the cost of money being up as well, because interest rates are high, not just for consumers on car loans and house loans, but but the interest rates that business pays as well. Well, that's exactly right. And it's not just this year, right? When a business is making that kind of, you know, multi-billion dollar expansion, they're looking not just one year, three years, even five years. They're looking 10, 15 years down the road. Um, and you start considering, not, again, not just the inflation crisis, but the litany of regulations and what that might look like going forward when you start thinking of these ESG mandates and regulations on energy and banking and things like that. I mean, these are hugely, hugely transformative decisions that the administration is making that could have a major negative impact on the economy uh, it stands to reason that there isn't confidence in what the economy could look like 10 years from now and what their requirements and costs could look like for a business 10 years from now. And that's, you know, restricting capital allocation, capital investment, um, which, again, is contributing to this recessionary environment. Hey, I want to ask you about something, Akash, that that whole idea of ESG. I watched a fascinating documentary that Epic Times had out called The Shadow State, and a lot of it dealt with the, the ESG. Would you mind explaining to my audience what ESG is all about and why is the private sector buying into this idea that somehow we should we should tell people we're not going to run our company based on making the greatest amount of products and profit 
and employing the greatest number of people, but we're going to run it instead on, on a whole set of political values instead. Yeah, exactly. ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance, right? Those are things like racial equity metrics, your, you know, your environmental emissions metrics, things like that. These are considerations that you know, both private sector actors are starting to consider in their investment strategy, but also some that government in many instances is trying to force onto private actors in the form of regulations or state investment portfolios and things like that. Um, And it does exactly what you're saying, right? It starts inserting these subjective, essentially political decision-making dynamics into dynamics into the decision-making rather simply uh, than maximizing shareholder value, right? If you think of, for example, a state pension system, the fiduciary responsibility is to maximize return on those investments for, you know, for the workers that depend on those pension systems. But instead what states are doing is they're prioritizing you know, these ESG factors, environmental, social governance, which, while, again, depending on your politics and how you feel about those things, they might make you feel good, they detract from the primary purpose of that fund, which is to maximize return on investment. So it really is very problematic, both in the private sector, um, but increasingly even more so, of course, when it's mandated by government. And that's why you're, you're starting to see more and more pushback, both at the state and federal level. I think we'll see a lot of state um, you know, financial officers and governor's offices push back on this. Um, but also, hopefully, we'll see a lot of oversight from House Republicans and the new Congress about what the administration is doing in the space as well. Well, I'm talking to Akash Chogli, who's senior advisor at Americans for Prosperity. Let, let me start with the state side of this first. States have hundreds of billions of dollars that is invested, you know, for, for purposes down the road, like paying pensions, among other things. If a state decides to willingly take ESG stocks at a lower return on that money than the non-ESG stocks, then they're effectively telling their, their voters, their citizens, you're going to have to pick up the difference. So if you said, well, we've got $200 billion invested to pay off these pensions we're going to owe, and we're used to making a certain percentage, but we're going to go with ESG stocks, aren't they, aren't they consigning their citizens to have to make up the difference when the fund falls short? Yeah, potentially, right? I mean, we've seen this happen over and over again in Illinois, for example, right? Illinois is an absolute basket case when it comes to pensions. That's been the case, you know, long before these ESG conversations entered into the fray. And that's why they keep having to raise taxes and they're threatening social services and, you know, other things that government is supposed to be doing because their pension obligations keep mounting. Um, ESG is going to exacerbate that, right? Because it's like I said, you're putting these political goals over maximizing return on investment. Somebody has to make up the difference if you're not going to just slash those benefits that you've promised to people. Of course, nobody wants to cut benefits that were promised to workers 50 years ago. Um, so, yeah, so that, that gap does have to be made up somewhere. And I think that is just one of the many dangers of going down this road. Well, and quickly, I've got about 30 seconds left. On the private sector, are, are stockholders going to be willing to say, yeah, you could make more money by just, you know, operating the company for profit, but we want you to operate at a, at a smaller profit or even a loss to meet these ESG goals. Aren't you going to see an awful lot of angry stockholders out there? Yeah, I mean, you will. But the problem is in the private sector, and this is a really important point, I'm glad you asked about this, is that you have these sort of activist investors, right? Or you have firms like BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, who control literally trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars in assets, right? And they're the ones who are voting on this, driving capital, making these decisions. Um, and so, frankly, they have much more say in it than the average investor does or the average shareholder does. 
Certainly sounds like it. Akash Chogali, Senior Advisor for Americans for Prosperity. Akash, thanks so very much. We'll look forward to you coming back. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a Tuesday. It's the Radio Northwest Network, and it's my pleasure to be with you. Glad to get your calls, too, at 866-HEY-LARS. I got some big news for you about that crazy ballot measure 114. You know, the unconstitutional ban on buying guns. Now, I was telling people for months that this thing would be effectively a ban, maybe short-term, maybe long-term but a ban on buying guns for all of the 4 million-plus citizens who live in the state of Oregon. Voters passed it by a very spare majority. And I actually had somebody question me when I said, well, that was a tiny majority of 27,000 votes. And they said, so are you saying that it shouldn't count if it's a small majority? No, I'm only saying that if you decide to run a ballot measure and it passes by that thin a margin, it suggests that there is great division in the state about whether or not that's the right thing to do. Having said that, uh, and let me tell you that this segment of the show is brought to you by Valhalla Tea, a perfect gift for the holidays, helping veterans with every bag sold at ValhallaTea.com. That's ValhallaTea.com. Now, what's happened since then? The ballot measure was passed on the 8th of November. It was supposed to go into effect on the 15th of January. And then the Secretary of State said, no, 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 let's have it go into effect on the 8th of December. In other words, a week before the vote was even uh, certified, which sounded a little strange at the time. I thought it was strange. But then immediately there were about five different lawsuits that were filed, some of them in federal court, one of them in state court before a judge in eastern Oregon. Well, guess what? That judge had a hearing scheduled for today. And I just saw the results of it. Uh, and in fact, I'll give credit to Maxine Bernstein, who's a good reporter who works for the Fish Wrapper. State judge maintains temporary restraining order blocking Measure 114's provisions that would require a background check to be completed before a gun is sold or transferred. Now, this is referred to by the anti-gun idiots on the left as the Charlotte loophole. And there's a whole story to be told about the Charlotte loophole. Maybe I'll have time for it. But basically, this is the judge saying he's looked at Oregon's Constitution, Article 1, Section 27, a more complicated name for an even better protection for citizens' rights to own guns than even the Second Amendment is in the federal Constitution. And why? Because the state Constitution of Oregon, written by folks who were concerned about losing their rights, said the right of the people to keep and bear arms to, for the defense of themselves and of the state shall not be infringed. So, uh, Article 1, Section 27, the judge said this law is unconstitutional and on the state constitution, not on the federal constitution. Well, here's the, what the judge actually wrote. Robert Rascio, who's a circuit court judge in Harney County and Grant County, uh, Robert Rascio wrote, the court declines to remove the background check provisions from the TRO as the provisions are intertwined with the permit to purchase program, this crazy idea that you have to get a permit to exercise a constitutional right. He goes on, the court has made no final determination on the constitutionality of the program. The court will address severability. That's where if you have multiple issues in a case before the court, 
you can sever them or not, depending on what the law says. You may be able to say, well, can we have this piece of the law go into effect? He says the court will address severability only if it finds the permit-to-purchase program unconstitutional at a final declaratory and injunctive hearing on the merits of the complaint so ordered January 3rd, 2023. So ballot measure 114 remains on hold. And as far as I'm concerned, that's the right result because this ban on buying guns is absolutely lunatic. And let me say just a word about the so-called Charlotte loophole. There are lots and lots of reporters who put that in their stories and they say why this would close the Charlotte loophole. Do you know what happened in Charlotte, North Carolina? A young man by the name of Dylan Roof murdered nine people at a church. He got a hold of a gun a couple of months beforehand and the store that sold him the gun decided to deliver it to him he had been put in for a background check. The background check was not finalized by the uh, NICS system, the National Instant Check System. And so by law, the gun store was allowed, not required, but allowed to provide him with the gun after three days. It turned out that there were things in his record that would have denied him the purchase of the gun. But guess who screwed up? The Department of Justice screwed up. And here's where it gets even more complicated. They say, well, they shouldn't have delivered him the gun. No, they should have told the gun store you can't give it to him. He is a habitual drug user. And under Form 4473, you can't buy a gun if you're a habitual drug user. He had admitted that he was a habitual drug user to the police. But the NICS system, the DOJ, screwed up. They called the wrong police agency. And so the police agency said, we have no record of the case that you're talking about. They had two more months to follow up on it because they could have called the gun store uh, two weeks later, six weeks later, and they could have said, look, he's not allowed to buy the gun. If you've delivered it to him, we're going to have the federal marshals come and take it away from him. They had two months between the middle of April when he got, bought and got the gun until June when he actually committed the murders. The Department of Justice screwed up. Now, of course, the folks on the left don't want to admit that government ever makes a mistake, but that's the so-called loophole they want to close, the thing that would take away the rights of American citizens to get a prompt and certain background check. And because the DOJ screwed up, they decided to pass a new law in the state of Oregon, and it's on hold by order of the judge. And you've got the Lars Larson Show. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com.